Welcome to Healthy Wealthy You, where we'll continue to explore all aspects of functional medicine and good health. We'll help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. Now, here is your host, Dr. Camille Vardy. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille. Today, I'd like to delve more deeply into emotional intelligence. We started talking about this in one of our episodes last month, and I'd like to take a new angle on that today. And there's so much to say about this that we'll need two episodes to delve into this. One of the most important aspects of emotional intelligence is the ability to have empathy for others. So let's look first at what empathy means. I love looking up words in the dictionary that we use regularly, and we think we know their meaning, but when we look at the definition, we're able to get some new nuance or insight. The dictionary specifically contrasts empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is when we share the feelings of another person. Empathy is when we understand the feelings of another person, even if we don't share them. And this is what makes empathy so important, because it's easy to find people with whom we feel and think the same. Social media gives us more than enough opportunities for that. But to be able to understand the other person's feelings, reactions, and motivations, even when they differ from your own, can transform interactions and relationships. It can create breakthroughs in tangled and difficult situations. Plato said, empathy is the highest form of knowledge because it causes us to to suspend our egos and live in the world of another person. This is a powerful tool. And I experienced an example of that just a couple of days ago. We've been having crazy weather here um, for the last three months. So much rain that hillsides are dissolving and the roads going over them have collapsed. Um, I've been without power uh, for 27 of the last 80 nights, a full one third of the time. Last week, I got stranded away from home for several days when all four roads to my house were blocked. After a five-day outage, I got a notification from the electric company that the power was on, but it wasn't. I quickly texted a few neighbors, and it was clear that the whole neighborhood was still down. One of the neighbors raced to where the workers were to find that they were packing up to leave. He told them the power was still off, but the foreman insisted the power was on, and he walked away. When I heard this, I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to have another cold night with no power. So I immediately called the electric company. It was eight o'clock at night and, you know, we just didn't want to go through one more. The customer service rep that I spoke with reacted strongly. He shouldn't talk to a customer like that. And she was ready to write him up for his response. But my empathy kicked in. Wait, wait, I said. I didn't call to complain about the foreman. I just called to make sure that they don't drive away. Um, Those workers have been out there for months, climbing poles in the cold rain, fixing hundreds of failures in the area. Um, This particular one involved an entire collapsed hillside 
that had to be stabilized. Uh, it had brought power poles down. It was crazy. So that guy was probably cold, hungry, exhausted, and aching all over his body. I didn't want him to be in trouble. I appreciate how hard all of you have been working these last few months. It's been a crazy time for all of us. Please, please, just make sure they don't leave. Well, there was a deep silence on the other end of the phone. And then the service rep said, I really needed to hear that right now. We really are exhausted. We've been working so hard and we get nothing but complaints. Thank you so much for saying that. That little bit of empathy created a win for all three of us. The foreman didn't need to hear a complaint after all his hard work. The service rep felt appreciated and inspired. And for us, we got our power back up in about a half an hour and got to sleep at night in a warm house. That's the power of empathy, being able to understand the feelings of another person, to be able to put ourselves in the mind and heart of someone and reflect, why are they responding this way? There's a lovely poem by Morgan Harper Nichols. Empathy, let me hold the door for you. I may never have walked in your shoes, but I can see that your souls are worn. Your strength is torn under the weight of a story I have never lived before. Let me hold the door for you. After all you have walked through, it is the least I can do. Now, empathy can be double-edged. It can help us in situations, but it's also a difficult thing in this very complex world. We hear stories in the media of difficulties from every part of the world in a way that's unprecedented in human history. We speak of information overload, but part of that can be empathy overload. How do we shield ourselves from all the suffering of the entire world? How much energy do we need to draw on to keep buffering ourselves from that every single day? Do we choose to get notifications on our phone to keep up with important news stories? Or do we turn away from current events to preserve our peace of mind? It's a very draining balancing act. It's particularly an issue for those of us in the healing professions or those who do community service. We cannot sustain ourselves if we cannot find some level of peace with what we encounter every day. One thing that brings me peace is to know that while I can be a conduit for health, for information, each person is responsible for what they do with it. The healing is up to them. Empathy overload can be a huge issue for parents too. This is one of the deepest forms of empathy in all of humanity, because these frail little humans came from our own bodies. How can we not feel what they feel? How can we protect our children from all of what we see in the world? This is deeply challenging. And while we ultimately cannot protect them from everything, perhaps what we can do is shield them and shield ourselves from the overwhelming bombardment of it to balance it with what is good and beautiful in the world. 
because there is plenty of that. To be empathetic, to be emotionally intelligent, it is essential to have the ability to identify our emotions and the emotions of others. And the more refined we are about identifying them, the better. And if we're able to do it quickly in the moment when we need it, such as during a disagreement, all the better. So often we can have an emotion bubble up and it seems so much stronger than is appropriate for the moment. Why am I so upset that my husband forgot to stop at the store? Why am I so upset that my wife didn't notice the extra effort I made? Why am I so upset that my boss threw a last minute project my way? Often the feelings that we may have may be a response to something that happened earlier, maybe at an earlier time in the relationship, or maybe even in a completely different situation with a different person. It could even be a response to things that happened in our childhood, things that we may not even remember or that we may not have even understood at the time what it meant. I don't remember a lot of my own childhood, really, just a few incidents. And being interested in psychology, I felt frustrated that I couldn't remember more. I kept wanting to unlock the big psychological secret of made me f- that, that made me feel the way I did and made me do the things I do. Then one day I had the insight that kids really do have a lot of their personality traits from birth. So what was I like as a kid? And what if I could just put myself in the room in each of the situations that I do remember? What did little Camille learn? How did she react to what was happening? Well, one thing I thought about was that I am very empathetic. And that's when I realized that the most important incident of my childhood wasn't something that happened to me. It was something that happened to someone else but I learned a big old lesson from it, and maybe not a good one. May I share the story with you? My mother was almost 40 when I was born, and I was her first child. Um, And my parents didn't want me to be an only child, so they decided to take a foster child into our home. My dad had grown up in an orphanage, and for him, this was a big way of giving back. And they thought, well, at the same time, they could give me a sister. It seemed like a great plan. Unfortunately, my foster sister had been terribly abused, and she had a lot of anger. She was very destructive and even violent. One day, she injured another child, the son of my parents' best friends. And my parents felt overwhelmed. It was so much more than what they had anticipated. And they told the foster care agency that they couldn't continue to care for her. Well, at five years old, I learned that if you were bad, you got sent away. And I didn't know where away was. But if the terrible kinds of things happened there that had happened to her, I was going to make sure that I wasn't ever going to have to go there. So at five years old, I decided I was going to be the most perfect person that I could possibly be. And 25 years later, 
I was still making myself crazy, trying to be perfect. I remember vividly the moment that I realized how important this incident was for me. I was driving on a country road, there was nowhere else around, and the rain was roaring down on my windshield. And in the moment that I had that insight, I started crying and shouting as loud as I could, don't send me away, don't send me away. I cried and cried, and when I was finished crying, I was changed. I realized that I was 29 years old and no one could give me away anymore. I was able to start on my journey of allowing myself not to be so perfect. And it completely changed my relationships and my choices. One of the biggest things was that by allowing myself to be an imperfect human, I could allow other people in my life to be imperfect humans. And we were all a lot happier. Now, one of the big takeaways here that I want to emphasize is to ask you to talk to children when big things happen, no matter what their age. Ask them how they felt about what happened. Watch their faces as they answer. They may say they're fine, but you might see on their faces that they're scared or confused. Ask them what's scary or confusing. Explain to them and reassure them on whatever level that they're able to understand. Your guidance might change their life. On the other hand, maybe they are just fine and they'll just say, mommy, I want a snack. But at least you had the opportunity to give them that guidance and, and change the course of their lives in a really big way with one small conversation. So today I want to delve more into um, the nuances of emotions. I hope that you'll take some time for self-reflection as we talk to think about how each of the concepts might apply to you and your life your relationships, your family, to all areas of your life. So let's refine and define emotions, because the more insights we have, the more we can shift things when we need them to shift, and we can get to that true win-win situation. So let's take a break here, and when we come back, we can take a deeper dive into some of these nuances of emotions. And I have a wonderful book that I want to share with you. This is Dr. Camille and Healthy Wealthy You. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. 
Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille. Today we're talking about emotional intelligence. We talked in a previous episode about the emotion wheel how we have core emotions in the center, and then each one of them gets refined into other emotions that are similar, but have a nuance to them. So today I want to look at these nuances from a very interesting perspective. And that is found in the book, Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaning, Connection, and the Language of Human Experience. And this book is by Brené Brown. She's written a lot of books and done a lot of videos on YouTube. She's really worth checking out if you aren't already familiar with her work. And I'm going to share a lot of her ideas today and also put a lot of my own spin on things. Um, She has a lot to say about the idea of refining emotions by giving them the right words and the right language. And to quote her book, Language is our portal to meaning-making, connection, healing, learning, and self-awareness. Having access to the right words can open up entire universes. When we don't have the language to talk about what we're experiencing, our ability to make sense of what's happening and share it with others is severely limited. Without accurate language, we struggle to get the help we need. We don't always regulate or manage our emotions and our experiences in a way that allows us to move through them productively, and our self-awareness is diminished. Language shows us that naming an experience doesn't give the experience more power. It gives us the power of understanding and, and meaning. To me, that's such a great description of emotional intelligence. And she talks about a few basic premises. One is people will do almost anything to not feel pain, including causing pain in others. This is a pretty well-established psychological principle, pain avoidance. Next, very few people are can handle being held accountable without rationalizing, blaming, or shutting down. Third, she says, without understanding how our feelings, thoughts, and behaviors work together, it's almost impossible to find our way back to ourselves and to each other. When we don't understand how our emotions shape our thoughts and decisions, we become disembodied from our own experiences 
and disconnected from each other. Now, one of the things that I like best about this book is that she's put emotions into very valuable categories and really interesting categories. Now, these categories are based on what triggers the emotion. And that means we can look at the situations that we find ourselves in when the emotions occur. Um, she has 11 categories, such as the places we go when things aren't what they seem, or the places we go when things don't go as planned. Um, so let's look at some of these and pick out some of the more interesting ideas here. Um, first is the places we go when things are uncertain or they're too much. Now, the emotions she associates here are stress, overwhelm, anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, fear, and vulnerability. That is quite a list. Now, it's easy to lump some or all of these things together, but it's actually useful to make some refinements. And an important thing to keep in mind is that one of the most common responses to this group is avoidance. And avoidance can really get us in trouble. The things that aren't said, the actions that aren't taken, so often things just build up and grow. And the more we avoid, the bigger it gets, and the more we want to avoid things further. Ouch. Our book defines stress as when the environmental demand is beyond our ability to cope successfully, and it includes unpredictability, uncontrollability, and feeling overloaded. I like this definition because it actually gives us the roadmap to resolution. If there's unpredictability, is there something I can do to predict it better? And maybe not this time, but maybe for next time. If I can't predict this time, then can, I, can knowing that I can do better next time help me get through what I need to handle today? If the issue is uncontrollability, then can I accept that certain things are beyond my control? And what does this acceptance give me? Are there big picture things that I can't control, like an act of nature or a fate? Or is this something that I can take steps to manage for the future, like changing jobs if the workload is excessive and unrelenting? Um, or if I know that I can do things differently in the future, does that help me to feel a little bit calmer today? Now, overwhelm is another emotion here, and it's the next level. The dictionary definition is overpowered by thought or feeling. And overpowered is the key word here. As Brené Brown puts it, even when people ask, how can I help or what needs to be done, Responding with organized thoughts feels impossible. This is often when I think to myself, if I had the wherewithal to figure out what comes next and how we need to approach all of this, I wouldn't be walking around in circles crying and talking to myself. <laughs> this definition of overwhelm, overpowered by thought or feeling, is interesting because, again, if our thoughts and feelings 
um, are what's involved, then can we very specifically ask, what would it take to shift that thought or that feeling? Sometimes it's just a matter of stepping back for the, from the situation. Exercise is great for this. It gets the brain oxygenated and gives time to look at things differently. Even if you're at your desk, get up and stretch, get some water, take some deep breaths. Personally, I'm a big fan of puzzles, especially word puzzles. So when I feel stressed and overwhelmed, I sometimes just stop my project. I take five minutes and do a little puzzle. And somehow it just calms the feeling of overwhelm for me. It just, it just allows my brain to focus on something else. It allows my cortisol to level off a little. And sometimes I even get an insight while I'm doing that. Another advantage of stepping back and shifting our thoughts and feelings is that sometimes it might keep us from saying or doing something that we might later wish we hadn't said or done. And we've all experienced a time when we wish we had done that. As the saying goes, there are three things you can never recover in life. The word after it's spoken, the opportunity after it's been missed, or the time once it's gone. So not saying that thing can be so valuable. Now, empathy can be particularly challenging when two people in a relationship both feel overwhelmed at the same time. And that isn't just for marriage or romantic partners. It can be any relationship. In a, it can be in a stressful workplace or even sometimes in people that we meet in passing as in my story about the power failure, a situation in which everyone was really feeling the stress. When more than one person is overwhelmed, it's really important to recognize that both people are running on empty and they have absolutely nothing to give. And it's crucial at that time to step back and realize that that person just isn't able to give help in that moment. They still care. They're not abandoning. They just are trying so hard to hold it together for themselves. So we need to step back and either handle it ourselves or seek help elsewhere without blame or bad feelings. I saw what happened um, when there's an empathy disconnect a long time ago when my partner and I went to see a war movie. Now, this is not something I usually do. It's not my kind of thing, but he really wanted to see it. And there was this extended battle scene. It went on for about a half an hour and it was really intense. I was completely shell-shocked. I could barely sit through the rest of the movie. And as soon as it was over, I felt so overwhelmed that I felt like I needed to run as fast as I could to burn off some of that energy that I was feeling. And I told him I was going to run the three miles home and that I would call later. And off I went. Well, I didn't think too much of it. But weeks later, it actually came out in an argument that he had felt overwhelmed too. And it had brought up a bunch of stuff for him as well. Things about his dad's experiences in war that had shaped his childhood and his relationship with his father. These were things I knew nothing about. And he was so upset with me that I had left, that I hadn't been there for him to help him process his experience. 
to him, it apparently felt like a substantial breach in our relationship. And there was a certain loss of trust. But at the time, I just couldn't. I was overwhelmed. I had nothing to give in that moment. Had he talked to me that night or the next day, I could have stepped up. But he held on to being upset about it. Even though in that moment, I had nothing to give. Zero. It's important to remember that when overwhelm happens, it's a physiological response. In my experience with the movie, I was flooded with cortisol. My body was in fight or flight. And what do we do when we're in fight or flight? We want to run. Um, my brain just couldn't think properly until I acted on that cortisol. So even though, even though it was just a movie and the danger was fictional and on a movie screen, like my body was reacting to that danger in fight or flight, and I had to run away from that danger. John Kabat-Zinn describes overwhelm as the feeling that our lives are unfolding faster than our nervous systems and psyche can manage. Now, this example of the movie is really simple, but how often do we see that kind of disconnect, that kind of interaction in life? How often, for example, in the demands of raising children, do we just feel that the other person isn't there for us? We feel abandoned. We, sh we shut down. We feel alone. And then we lose a certain amount of trust that the other person will be there for us or wants to be there for us. And then when the next time comes, the breach gets even wider. Eventually, the kids grow up. They go off to college. And suddenly, we have to face the fact that we felt alone for so long that we don't even know how to be together anymore. Perhaps this might even work, uh, might happen in a work situation. The overload is big. The, the workload is too much. The demands are too strong. The resources are inadequate and tempers flare. And there's a disconnect in the relationships of the team. When really all we need to do at this time is to just go to our separate corners for a while, regroup, rethink redirect, get support and resources from somewhere else. Sometimes we need to stand apart so we can come together. Next on our list of emotions that are the places we go when things are uncertain or too much is anxiety. And anxiety is very much about uncertainty, the inability to control. All of the things that we've discussed so far about stress and overwhelm can apply here too. Anxiety is also a physical response. And I really like treating anxiety because it's so measurable and it's so treatable. Um, I, see, I see two common themes. One is a lack of oxygen. In fact, ex extreme anxiety manifesting as panic or panic attacks are often a lack of oxygen. So I look at a person's cardiovascular health, their lung capacity, it can be improved with exercise, but there are other issues too. Are the lungs well hydrated? Are there allergies that block the sinuses or the lung passages? Is there a physical tightness in the chest or diaphragm that can be released with massage or body work? 
The other issue that I see in anxiety are issues with the nervous system itself. It's often a neurotransmitter issue. Glutamic acid is the neurotransmitter that's the up volume control in the nervous system. And GABA is the down volume control. Adjusting for this with diet or supplements can be extremely helpful. Now, worry is often grouped with anxiety, and it's often used to define anxiety, but worry is quite different. Worry has two distinct components. One is that it's completely future-oriented. It's an anticipation of what might happen in the future. And worry has a component, uh, companion emotion, dread. Dread is when the future outcome has a high probability of being negative. The second component of worry is that it's a very cyclic thought process. If A happens, then B might happen, and then C might happen, and if C happens, then A will certainly happen. So we create all kinds of scenarios in our head. Maybe some of them are real, maybe some of them are likely, maybe some of them are highly probable, but the issue is that we cannot get this out of our heads. And we often lay awake at night thinking and thinking and thinking. So first we have to discern, is there a real danger or am I consistently responding to maybe a fear from my past? Maybe I had one child who was injured and now I'm worried even though my other child is really only 20 minutes late, I'm worried that it's going to happen again. Maybe the worry is from something really external, such as a news story that I read today. And absolutely, sometimes the worries are all too real. A loved one is ill. A family member really hasn't come home when they should. Finances aren't adding up. Here again is where curbing the physiological component is so helpful. Calm the cortisol, breathe, stretch, get the body moving. Distract yourself maybe with something that makes you happy, a hobby or something like that. Just anything you can do in the moment just to distract yourself and fill the time. And then ask, what can I control and what can't I control? Of the things that can be controlled, try to break things down into small, small manageable actions. Worry is about something in the future. So what can I do in the present moment to help the outcome? Try to find support from knowledgeable professionals, from friends, from your spiritual base, if that's helpful to you, from whatever source you can. And from then, from there, know that there are things in life that we cannot control. And there are times we just have to live with that. Now, fear falls into this category too. And I talked a lot about fear and fright and the dif difference between them in our February 10th episode. So I won't take the time for that today, but I'd love to have you go back and listen to that one as well. Last of the emotions in this category is vulnerability. Brene Brown has a lot to say on this topic, not just in this book, but in other books and in her talks. One key piece that she emphasizes is that vulnerability is not a weakness. It's an act of courage. 
It's courageous to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. It means that we're letting our walls down and that there is potential to be hurt. And allowing that is an act of courage. In my mind, vulnerability is an essential part of loving. When we love, we show our true selves, what we perceive as good and what we perceive as bad. We take a chance on disapproval and rejection on the deepest level. But it's also deeply beautiful. And some might say on a philosophical level that it is the meaning of life. That is why I think sometimes in our deepest traumas, we can find the deepest beauty. It's why people on their deathbeds say things to loved ones that they've never said before. And those are often the things that we've waited our whole lives to hear and that we never forget. And that's why in times of disaster, communities pull together and help each other. People reach out in ways that they never normally would. So perhaps our saving grace is that in our hard times, the vulnerability and the beauty come together. So let's take another break here. This is Dr. Camille, and we'll be right back with more of Healthy Wealthy You. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille, and today we're delving deeply into emotional intelligence, the nuances of emotion, and we're taking a look at the book, Atlas of the Heart by Brené Brown. Now, again, what I like about this book are the categories into which she puts things. Um, The next one is, the places we go when we compare. Some of the emotions that she puts in this bucket are admiration, jealousy, envy, and resentment. I love her definition of comparison. Comparison is the crush of conformity from one side and competition from the other, 
It's trying to simultaneously fit in and stand out. Rather than being ourselves and respecting others for being authentic, we say, I want to fit in, but I want to be the best at fitting in. I want to play the same sport as you, but I want to be better at it. Because if we're not even playing the same game, then I'm not winning. In fact, I could even be marginalized by society for being too different. We engage in an upward and a downward comparison. Who in the room am I better than? Who in the room is better than me? And can I achieve what they have? Now, depending on how we choose to view it, the comparison can either demoralize us or inspire us. In fact, many athletes, for example, prefer to train with people that are more skilled than them because it causes them to push harder and it helps them to see what's possible. All of these categories, all of these emotions have a positive and a negative side. Comparison is a natural response, but we can choose to use our admiration as a model for bettering our situation, or we can let it steal our contentment for what we do have. It can cause us to feel not good enough, and it can cause all the stress and self-disdain that goes with it. There are two emotions in this category that I always thought meant the same thing, but breaking out the dictionary again, we'll look at envy and jealousy. Envy is when we want something that someone else has. Jealousy is when we perceive a rivalry or competition for what we have, and that it can possibly be taken away. Interesting. Brené Brown cites a study that asked people what things they were envious of, and 90% of the responses fell into three categories. One was attractiveness, either beauty, romantic attractiveness, success, or social popularity. The second category was competence, intelligence, knowledge, abilities of various kinds, such as athletic or professional abilities. The third category was wealth, financial status, lifestyle. Again, I've said this before, but with more than 25 years of seeing patients, I know deeply that what other, what, what other people appear to be on the outside is not necessarily what their lives are like. I've seen people that have all the outward appearance of a charmed life but there's always something that they carry, a pain, an illness, a challenging family situation. There's always something. So please don't let comparison steal your joy. Now, in the matter of jealousy, Brené Brown references researchers Mingyi Chung and Christine Harris. And I'm going to quote directly from the book because she and the researchers that she quotes say it so well. Jealousy typically involves a triad, two people in a relationship, and then a rival. The rival is usually another person, but occasionally it can be something else, such as the loss of valuable relationship time to a favorite activity. They write, the core form of jealousy 
primarily involves threats to relationship rewards, including loss of a loved one's attention, affection, or resources to another. We mostly think of jealousy in the context of romantic relationships, but jealousy also applies to parent-child interactions, sibling relationships, friendships, and even coworker relationships. In children, jealousy most often relates to loss of parental attention or perceived special treatment of a sibling that they believe to be unfair. In adults, there are the familiar scenarios like our partner flirting with someone at a party or a close friend suddenly spending a lot of time with a new friend. But sometimes we might even feel a pang of jealousy when a partner or friend spends a lot of time alone doing something that doesn't involve us. We might feel anger or sadness or fear, but what goes through our mind is that we are jealous. And the reason for our jealousy is that the other person or activity is threatening to take time away from our relationship. Now, it's normal to feel some level of jealousy, and research shows that in small doses and expressed appropriately, it's a normal part of healthy relationships. It's interesting to note that the people who are more satisfied in their romantic relationships are less likely to be jealous about potential relationship threats. However, they're more likely to react negatively to feel more betrayed when there are actual relationship breaches. The next emotion that she puts in this comparison group is resentment. And it's easy to see how envy, jealousy, comparison can evolve into this. If you have something I don't have, if you're better than me, it can lead to resentment. And that's true. The dictionary definition is bitter indignation that we have been treated unfairly. So who has treated us unfairly? Is it the person of whom we're envious? Perhaps it's our boss at work who has a certain amount of control over our livelihood and is being unreasonable? Or is it my neighbor with more money that I perceive to have more freedom and a better life? Even again, even though I don't know what challenges he or she has that I can't see. Or maybe it's not a who that's taking something away. Maybe it's a what. Is it life? Is it fate? Is it that I was born into the wrong family or the wrong country, the wrong socioeconomic situation, or challenging genetics that causes me to have poor health? What is it that I'm resenting? One of my mentors calls these issues our curriculum. It's what we came into the school of life to sort it out, and sort it out we must. So an important part of resentment is to look at what am I resentful of specifically and what skills can I bring to the table to bring about a better situation? Can I shift the conversation with my boss? Can I get a different job with more pay? Can I retrain for a different career? And if there are things that I can't change, like the circumstances of birth, 
or family? And what can I learn? What can I do to come to peace with the challenges I face? Resentment eats away at us and peace is up to us. There are joys to be had in this world. Don't let a single one go by unnoticed. Renee Brown talks about how helpful it is to reframe her resentments in this way. She mostly felt resentful toward people whom she perceived to be not working or sacrificing or grinding or perfecting or advocating as hard as she was. She said, you want to see me go into full tilt resentment? Just watch someone tell me, yeah, I stopped working on it. It's not exactly perfect, but it's good enough. Or I know it's due tomorrow, but I'm wiped out, so I'm packing it in. Or I don't get involved in those issues. They really don't affect me. Then she realized I'm not mad because you're resting. I'm mad because I'm so bone tired and I want to rest. But unlike you, I'm going to pretend that I don't need to. I'm not furious that you're okay with something that's really good and perfect. I'm furious because I want to be okay with something that's really good and imperfect. Your lack of work is not making me resentful. My lack of rest is making me resentful. And reframing it in that way, she says, was life-changing. As she puts it, resentment is the feeling of frustration, judgment, anger, better than the hidden envy related to perceived unfairness or injustice. It's an emotion that we often experience when we fail to set boundaries or ask for what we need, or when expectations let us down because they were based on things we can't control, like what other people think, what they feel, or how they're going to react. So, boundaries it is. The last category that I want to talk about today is places we go when it's beyond us. Such an interesting way of putting it. Here we see confusion, curiosity, awe, and wonder. More good feelings than challenging ones. Confusion is what we feel when we can't figure something out in the moment. It's uncomfortable. We feel as though the ideas or the problems are beyond us. But confusion is critical to the learning. It can feel like a negative, but we can turn it into a really great positive. It triggers us to solve these problems, to be creative and search out new ways of doing things, new ways of looking at things. The key is that there is a tendency when we're confused to dismiss new information that doesn't fit our expectations or that challenges our ideas or that causes us discomfort or confusion. We need the right amount of confusion, confusion that makes us try new things, not confusion that causes us overwhelm, frustration, boredom, or that causes us to give up or confusion that gets our cortisol pumping. Mary Slaughter and David Rock of the Neuroleadership Institute make the analogy to exercising a muscle. 
We might feel a muscle burn when it's working hard. And similarly, our minds may hurt for a while, but that's a good thing. Confusion can lead us to curiosity. Curiosity is recognizing a gap in our knowledge about something that interests us and becoming emotionally and cognitively invested in closing that gap through exploration and learning. Curiosity often starts with interest and can range from mild curiosity to passionate investigation. We've acknowledged a gap in what we know and what we understand, and our heart and head are both invested in closing that gap. There's a thinking challenge and an emotional experience of the satisfaction or potential satisfaction of closing that gap. We have some level of awareness or knowledge before we can become curious. We aren't curious about something that we're unaware of or that we know nothing about. And this has huge implications for education. As children, our curiosity is often tested as we grow up. And we sometimes learn that too much curiosity, like too much vulnerability, can lead to hurt. As a result, we turn to self-protection, choosing certainty over curiosity. We armor our, our vulnerability, and we choose knowing over learning. But shutting down comes with a price, a price that we rarely consider at the time. Einstein said, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existence. Curiosity is reason for existing, and it is not simply to be a tool for acquiring knowledge. It reminds us that we're alive. Awe and wonder are in this category as well, and they're often experienced in response to nature, art, music, spiritual experiences, or ideas. We experience it on our child, children's faces. We feel it with those we love. And these emotions inspire us to some of our greatest accomplishments in life, to strive to make a better life for our children because of this love. In the midst of these moments, we can feel overwhelmed by the vastness of something that's almost comprehensible. It almost feels like what we're witnessing can't be true, like we're seeing something that doesn't fit with how we move through and understand our everyday lives. Awe-inspiring events and the experiences that leave us filled with wonder often make us feel small compared to our expansive universe. Small, but connected to each other and connected to the largeness itself. Researchers Ulrich Wegner and Johann Wagemann write, wonder inspires the wish to understand. Awe inspires the wish to let shine, to acknowledge and to unite. When feeling awe, we tend to simply stand back and observe, to provide a stage for that phenomenon to shine. Awe and wonder are essential to the human experience. 
Wonder fuels our passion for exploration and learning, for curiosity and adventure. I want to leave you today with a quote by E.E. Cummings. Once we believe in ourselves, we can risk curiosity, wonder, spontaneous delight, or any experience that reveals the human spirit. I hope that today you believe in yourself and that your day is filled with wonder and awe. This has been Dr. Camille on Healthy Wealthy You on Voice America Radio. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Healthy Wealthy You. Have a question but weren't able to get on the show today? Join us next week and call in. Until then, hold that inspiration.